Hello, I'm Katie, and this is The Bittersweet Life. A quick word. You rely on us to show up every week, and we depend on you to keep this show going. In a few weeks, a huge bill is coming due for us, over $400 in hosting fees, and at a time when both Tiffany and I are underemployed. I know many of you are too, so for those of you who can, please support the show. You can make a donation at our website, thebittersweetlife.net, or check out all the thank you gifts and pledge to become a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash thebittersweetlifepodcast. You can find all those links in the show notes. And a big thank you to our three newest Patreon supporters, Jill, Donna, and Neil. Watch your mailboxes and inboxes for thank you cards and gifts, including our exclusive Super Secret Truth or Dare episode one of my absolute favorite episodes of the show. And thank you to those of you who recently pledged at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. You'll be getting special gifts and a handwritten thank you note in your mailbox soon as well. Thank you, Lori, Teresa, Valerie, and Jill. And for all of you who have contributed to the show monthly for years, we are extremely grateful to you, as always. So if you love the show and you want to help, Find those donate links in the show notes. A little goes a long way. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today... We're taking a trip down memory lane. No, we're not. We're not. No? Uh, that's what I was going to say, but then I realized that doesn't really make any sense. But we are going to talk about the nature of memory. So, in a way. <laughs> so It's not our memories, but just talking about memories. Exactly. For a number of reasons. I've been wondering how, in this time of quarantine, how we'll remember this period of time. It's this interesting period where the days are sort of the same, but then we're in a very different circumstance. And so I've been wondering, will we remember anything? Will it be extremely vivid? Or will it all just eventually be this mush that we look back on and it's just a picture of us sitting inside the house? <laughs> what do you think? I think that we'll remember it. I think that it's going to be one of those things in life, like before and after. Yeah. You will categorize your life things that happen before this and things that happen after like you do when you have a child or when you get married or when your mom dies or you know when big life things happen you always kind of think oh was that before or was that after and I think this is going to be one of those things and I think that we might not remember the details but I think we'll never forget this time yeah and how can you forget it's like people who live through the war how could you forget that yeah, maybe you don't forget it, but what about the details of it? The details, yeah, I mean, it, it might be that you remember like something you do every day like that you didn't do before. Like, for example, let's say you start practicing yoga, you, you will probably remember that. Or let's say you just start, you know, getting blind drunk every night. No, <laughs> but you'll probably, I mean, I, I don't see how you couldn't remember specific details, although, of course, it does help to write them down. Yes, it does. I've been meaning to 
be writing a journal during this time. I always am meaning to write in my journal. It's always one of those things that I'm like, I'd love to write in my journal. You are a really good journal writer, if I remember. Uh, no, I was a good journal writer when I was living in Rome. And for a couple of years thereafter, I'm not anymore. <laughs> and in fact, in thinking about writing about this time, because I've heard that before, you should keep a journal during this time. You're going to want to remember. Yeah. I have been more of the camp of, I don't know. I don't know that I actually want to write any of this down. Really? Yeah. For many reasons. I don't really know why. It's not like it's been all bad or all good or and more likely somewhere in between. But I have thought many times that I don't feel like writing about this at all. And I don't know. It's like making a conscious choice to let some of the memory of it fade hmm. in the future. Oh, well, that's interesting. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm totally the opposite. Like, I want to remember everything. So you better get writing. <laughs> yeah, I should be. I should be. It's like the one thing that I can't manage to do. Like, I've been really good about, like, my morning routine and doing the little daily rituals that I've been wanting to incorporate into my life, but that I often don't have the time to do. I've been really, really good about everything except the one thing that I just can't seem to do is write in a journal. And part of it's because I think as a writer, I mean, and you know this, like when you're a writer and you're actively working on other writing projects, it's hard to take time away from that to just like write random thoughts in a journal. You feel like either you're sick of writing or you're like, I should be working on my project, not this, which isn't going to bring anything. Although I don't necessarily think that's true. It's just what I think. Well, let me put your mind at ease. If you never write a word of this, at least you have this show. Well, exactly. You can say, I got to rock down memory lane. I'm going to go back and listen to episodes 300 through what, whatever the heck, 400, 400. Right, depending <laughs> on how long this lasts. So there's another reason I wanted to talk about memory today, and that's because of a passage in a book I've been reading that I thought was kind of thought provoking. It's a book called Flights. I'm probably going to butcher the last name of this woman, but it's written by Olga Tokarczyk. My apologies if that's incorrect. She's a Polish writer, and she recently won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Wow. Not necessarily for this work, this particular book, but for her body of work. But this is her newest book. And the entire thing is a series of vignettes, most of them focused on travel. And this appeared in one of them. I'm going to have you read it because you're such a good reader. I guess I'll set it up by just saying, doesn't matter who these characters are. The whole book is fragments, but this is happening on a train. This passage is happening on a train. So I'll just say that and then you can read it. Lost in thought, he gazed out the window at the landscape that seemed to hurry off somewhere. Didn't he ever think, what does we were there really even mean? Where did those two weeks in France go? Those weeks that today can squeeze into just a couple of memories. The onset of hunger by the city's medieval walls and the twinkling of evening at a cafe where the roof was covered in grapevines. What happened to Norway? All that's left is the chill of the water in the lake that endless day. And then the delight of the beer brought just before the shop shut or the arresting first glimpse of the fjord. The things I've seen are mine now. The young man suddenly revived, concluded, slapping his palm down on his thigh. It's great. Yeah. What I loved about that was I love that philosophical question, where did those two weeks in France go? Even for me, you can spend a year living in Rome and it gets boiled down into a handful of memories that I could shove in my pocket. Really? Well, there's more than that. 
but even still, it's not like a year's worth of memories. It's a this moment that stands out. Tiffany and me watching the street explode on New Year's Eve or me writing in my journal on the terrace on the top of my building or walking into the churches and stuff. It's not, obviously, we don't carry every moment with us forward. We live all these long days, but then they become little vignettes. Yes, I get it. I get that. But that would be the case in our regular life, too. If you lose two weeks in France, you would have lost two weeks in your regular life. So you might as well have spent them in France and you still have at least a few memories. I mean, I don't particularly, I love this passage. I think it's beautiful. And I love particularly the last line of it. But I don't necessarily agree that that a trip can be boiled down to just a few memories. I feel that travel changes you in such profound ways that even if you maybe don't remember everything, you're still changed by it. Yes, changed by what you picked up there. Yeah, what you lived, what you saw. I mean, I think of my time in India. I spent six weeks in India traveling around and I do have very, very distinct memories, a lot of them. But I'm sure there are many things that I've totally forgotten. But I think something changed in me during that trip. Something, I don't know, my eyes were just opened. I had never been so far away. I'd never been to, uh, I mean, I'd never been outside of Europe and North America, really. So it was just a totally different world I was seeing. And seeing how people live, so different from what I was used to seeing. And I think that when you see things like that, you can't help but somehow be changed or at least learn so much and grow so much, even if you don't necessarily remember the details. Yeah, it's certainly the first time you ever go to a country, for instance, where people are extremely poor, very destitute. And you think, especially if you're just a young person coming from the United States, and you think, this is just the way life is. And you realize for that first time, no, this is not the way it lives for so many people. It could be a totally different thing. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think you take the lessons, but it is also interesting. I still think it's interesting, this notion of what what memories you pick up and what things you forgot. And I did invite an expert on to help us untangle some of this because we can muse about it all day, but I'm like, where are the experts? Bring in the experts. There's got to be some people that have studied memory. So should we bring in our expert? Bring her in here. All right. Susan Ingle is a member of the psychology department at Williams College and the director of the Williams Program in Teaching. She's the author of eight books, and her latest, The Intellectual Lives of Children, will be published by Harvard University Press next winter. Thanks for joining me to talk about memory on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. You also have a book called Context is Everything, The Nature of Memory. That's true. So if context is everything... Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, well, I I better explain the origins of that book. So I'm a developmental psychologist. Yes. My first book that I ever wrote, I was very young, was about children's storytelling, how children learn to tell stories about their lives, make up stories, to uh, create stories with friends. Uh, It's about narrative development. And one of the things I talked about in that book was how important it was in early childhood for children to recount the past with their families, uh, because it turns out that reminiscing is is a very powerful and generative process in early life and sets the stage for all kinds of skills and abilities as kids get older. And actually, it was my editor. I had a wonderful editor in those days at Freeman. And at the end of the book, he said, you need to write a book about autobiographical memory. 
Hmm. That's what led me to write the book, Context is Everything, The Nature of Memory. I started that book interested in how we develop the capacity to think about our lives, to create a life story. As I wrote the book, I began to see that one of the things that other people weren't talking about was the role that your context or your setting plays in shaping what you remember, how you put together a story about your past, what you emphasize, uh, the perspective you offer, and that there isn't just one story for any particular memory. There are several stories. There's the version you tell your mother and the version you tell someone you were flirting with and the version you tell yourself when you're feeling bad about yourself and then the different version you tell yourself when you're feeling joyous and triumphant. And and that's where the title Context is Everything comes from, that understanding that that memories are created in the moment that you're having them. They're not set in the moment when you first have the experience. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. So I sent you a little bit of a book that Tiffany and I have been discussing. Yeah. And that one is very travel based. She asked that question, how can my two weeks in France become just two memories? Where did this long time go? Yeah. Have you ever found that that memory works differently when we're in a travel situation? or in a brand new place versus when we're at home? So I can't give you a particular answer in the sense that I don't know of studies, research that compares travel memory to home memory. However, there's a vast, like an ocean of research on the difference between how we sort of encode and recall usual experiences and how we encode and recall unusual experiences. In fact, the way that I got into this whole area of, of research was because of our insight, our understanding as developmental psychologists, that the first one of the first ways that children make sense of the world around them is by sorting things out into usual and unusual, or in literary terms, canonical and non-canonical. So if you eat breakfast every day the same way, imagine you're three, but even if you're 30, you sit down at the same table, you have a bowl of cereal, you have a cup of juice, and the same other person walks into the room and sits next to you. You're going to have a hard time remembering particular instances of that. You're going to remember the day that you had French toast instead, or the day someone you didn't know sat down at the table, or the day you spilled the juice everywhere. But you're not going to remember all the days that were the same. Now, for little kids, that's really powerful because it enables them to make sense of everyday life and they build their whole cognitive system on those scripts of everyday life. But as you get older, those scripts recede to the background. It's the usual, it's quotidian that kind of sets the stage. And then it's the things, the unusual things that become really interesting to you and that you work on and, and weave into what Dick Neisser called the autobiographical self. So he was a cognitive psychologist who said that there, I think there are seven kinds of self. I might be remembering that wrong. It might be five, but I think it's seven. And he describes the different kinds of selves that people have. And one of them is the autobiographical self, the sense of yourself in the past. That self is filled with these particular memories, like your two weeks in France. You're likely to remember many more things in those two weeks than you would in any other two weeks of your life. I mean, my husband and I, so we've been married almost 40 years, and about 42 years ago, we traveled to Europe together. 
I think he still remembers every single meal we ate and we were there for a month. Now, if I ask him about some other month in the last 42 years, what did we eat? He wouldn't know, but he, he would know what we ate when we were in France and Italy all those years ago. So is there anything in your studies that could somehow predict why a moment in France would become, um, like, let's say, if she kind of refers to, oh, that, that one special beer we had or whatever, but why one memory would stick around while another one would be completely lost? Well, like I said, mo most the first thing is that unusual things stick around and regular things that are more like similar to every other experience you've had are less likely to stick around. That said, there are all kinds of other things that make a memory stand out. It was unusually upsetting or unusually wonderful. Often it has to do with the self story you're constructing. If that beer, did you say it was a beer? Yeah, I think it was a beer in the yeah. story, yeah. Okay. If there's a beer or the having of a beer that is the beginning of a story or the beginning of an explanation to you about your own experience, like why I now love this person so much or why that was the beginning of the worst part of my trip or why now I'm an adventurous person. I mean, there are many kinds of things that people want to explain about themselves. Some have to do with their characteristics. Some have to do with the events in their life. But if that beer helps you explain yourself in some way or helps justify a view of yourself that you have, you're more likely to remember it and you're more likely to rehearse it, to repeat it. So one of the things that I, I bet I would imagine you'll think is familiar is that often you tell a story over and over again a certain way. You get a laugh or it makes people sympathetic to you or you love the way you feel when you tell the story. And before you know it, you really don't know what actually happened in the original event. You just remember the story. And that's because the more you rehearse a memory, the less of a memory it is and the more of a story it is. So, you know, the beer, who knows what really happened? And all of us have had the experience of meeting up with someone who, who shared an event with us. The other person having the beer or the person who had a fight with you at Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is. And it turns out you have very different memories. Mm -hmm. Now, it's possible that it's because several different things happened and you picked up on different pieces of the event. But it's also possible that one or both of you distorted it so much over the retellings of it that neither of you have access to what originally happened. Which means that we are very unreliable narrators, in a way, of our own story. Is that true? Well, we're un... It depends on what you're looking for reliability about. If you... We're reliable at telling how we want to see our life and what our, our version of our own life is. Uh, we're unreliable if you're looking for eyewitness testimony. Yeah. Why you're remembering has a big impact on what you remember and how you put together the details or the elements of a particular experience. So let's say we're in a somewhat unremarkable experience. I'm in my office today, stuck at home in quarantine, and I've been this way for two months now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So these days are going to very much blend together. Uh -huh. But let's say for whatever reason, I really wanted to remember this moment. Is there anything that I can do that would imprint a memory? Oh, what an interesting question. Well, first of all, I was going to say when you started this question, there's nothing unremarkable about today because it's part of this pandemic. But you're right that for many of us, these days have blended together, that we're, we're going out so rarely, so much becomes 
sort of the strange mush of eat, work, take care of family, whatever it is. And I mean, you're lucky. We're both lucky that nothing remarkable is happening to us because most of the remarkable things that are happening to people right now are bad. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think about that every day. I think don't be sorry for the monotony. You're lucky. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But that said, your question, which is what could you do to make an experience stand out? You could rehearse it. And I will tell you, I just started this the other day. So all those years ago when that wonderful editor encouraged me to write that book, context is everything. He also said to me, you know, you should keep a journal. And I didn't. I'm an academic. I'm a researcher. I love to write, but not journals. I like to write books about psychology and about children. Mm -hmm. And three days ago, for the very first time in my adult life, I sat down and started to write a journal. Because I realized it's very funny, because I didn't even know who you were at that time. But um, Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, I'm going to want to remember what it was like to live through this pandemic. Yeah. And I better start keeping a record. And even if the days are boring, my days aren't boring, I'm pretty lucky. And But even if they're monotonous and very little unusual happens, if I write down the details, I'll have a record of it. So that's one thing, the writing of it. And, you know, writing, it's one of the early technologies we acquired for aiding our memory. By writing it, you have the written document But it's also the case, to answer your original question, that by writing it, you encode it in a certain way and you're more likely to remember it or you're more likely to remember more of it. Two more questions. Since I have you here, I just can't not ask. (laughs) So there's always these people in our family who seem to be the keepers of the memories. Oh, great way to put it. And then the people who just say they cannot remember. I have a sister who just always says, uh, oh, you got to ask Katie. I I don't have a memory for these things. Uh, Yeah. Do people have varying degrees of an ability to remember things if they're just a normal functioning adult? Yes. So um, I don't want your sister, if she ever hears this, to take this the wrong way. But we certainly know that memory is a strong individual difference. And I, this is just someone's going to skewer me for saying this, but I'll just say it anyway. Look, memory is part of the original intelligence test. Now, there's memory for different things. So your sister may have an exceptional memory when it comes to numbers or information or graphs or pictures or how to do the things she's good at in her life, flying airplanes, cooking, taking care of animals, whatever. But there's no question that there are individual differences in the capacity to remember, number one, and and they're not all the same. So autobiographical memory and knowledge memory are not quite the same. So so one of you could be really good at one and another at something else. The other thing is what you pay attention to. So attention is very closely linked to memory. And there's an abundant research to show that. And I'm going to guess by the fact that you're do, you do this show and that you used to work for NPR, I believe, mm-hmm. that you have a great interest in things about people's lives and details. That's true. It goes with what you do, and you're very verbal, or you wouldn't be doing radio. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising that then you would be the one considered to have the good memory for family stories and family events. So, yes, there is some truth to that. Now, that said, also, people vary in how useful and satisfying it is to remember the past. Novelists probably are exceptionally good at remembering things from their lives and other people's lives. The fact that everyone treats you like the good memory person for your family, it's true that that's self-perpetuating because then you pay attention to those things, then you practice it, then you are ready to be asked, and then you have the answer. All of that 
goes into a kind of perpetuating that and strengthening that aspect of who you are. Okay, so now I have two more, and then I will let you go about your life. <laughs> the first one is going back to the very first memory people have in life. There's a stereotype, and maybe it's not a stereotype, but that's why I'm asking. There's a stereotype that most often it's some sort of traumatic event. The first thing a kid remembers. We all think back on our childhood and we go, that's where it began in my memory. What is the truth of those very first memories from what you've learned in your studies? Okay, so first, this gives me a chance to offer a caveat that I wish I had said at the beginning, which is that I do not do research in this area anymore. Yes, it's a very vibrant area of research. And any interested listener should go and look at who the people are doing research in this area now, because it's fabulous. And there's probably a lot that's been discovered that I, I don't even know about because I don't, I'm involved in other kinds of research. That said, I don't think what you said is true. <laughs> <laughs> Good. As far as I know, there's very little evidence to that effect. So first of all, as I said, the first things kids remember are actually not the singular things, but the everyday things. They can't recall those and make good stories out of them, but that's the first kind of remembering. Second of all, most things that people remember about their early childhood, I even have some evidence of that in my, in my newest book that's coming out next year, are, are not traumatic at all, but very specific. You remember a toy that you love to play with or a funny rhyme that you said, or I remember. So when I was a baby, I lived in New York City and I remember two things. I remember my sister and her best friend accidentally tilting over the baby carriage and my tumbling out. It wasn't traumatic. I just remember it. They were laughing and sort of wasn't traumatic at all. I also remember sitting under my babysitter's ironing board while she watched uh, soap operas. It's nothing. It's a very banal memory. I just have a very strong image of it. I do not think there is any evidence that children's first memories are of traumatic experiences. Hmm. And to end, since you started with how kids learning how to reminisce and their narrative development, and this is much of what you're working on now, it sort of gets that larger, a little bit more philosophical question of what is the value of a memory? Oh, my God. If it's not something that just informs you so that you stay alive or the things that help us function in the world, but the value of these memories of France. Maybe the larger question is, what is the value of us as adults reminiscing when we've sort of constructed a narrative already? Oh, my God. That question is too big to answer at the end of an interview. I mean, what good are we without it? And all you have to do is think about people who don't have a memory anymore for their past or people with certain kinds of brain damage who don't have memory and their their life is terrible. So I would ask the opposite, which is what are we without it? I love that. That's a great answer. <laughs> well, okay. Susan Ingle, thank you so much for jumping online with me and talking. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Well, that was fascinating. It's nice to hear someone who actually has done research on memory and doesn't just think about it and wonder about it and ponder it like we do. Yeah, and that ending notion with one of my impossible questions, I suppose. Sometimes I ask questions that are just too big, or if someone were to ask me, I'd, I'd just stare at them blankly. But luckily, I'm very rarely in the interviewee chair. <laughs> but I did love her answer of what are we without it, which is sort of true, but also chilling notion of what are we but our memories is sort of an interesting ooh, 
thought. I think that really goes back to the line from the book, Flights, when he says, that's mine now. Mm-hmm. It's not just yours, it's part of you. I think the memories that you have become part of you. And when you see things, and this often happens in travel just because we're so out of our everyday, but it doesn't have to be travel. But in this case, when you see something, it does become part of you. It, it becomes part of your lived memory and part of your story. Yeah, particularly if if we are to believe what she said, which is so interesting of that the things that we remember is in part because of how it fits into the story we're telling, yeah. which is another really fascinating notion, isn't it? That we pick up memories that fit the narrative that we're crafting about our own lives. Yeah. I mean, I think we notice things. I mean, not just what we remember, but even what we notice. We notice things that fit with what we think of ourselves. Um, They did this really great study. I have no idea who did it. Don't ask me any details, but I read about it. So it definitely happened. Um, (laughs) They did this study and and they took people and they asked them, are you a lucky person? And so some people said they were lucky. Some people said they weren't lucky. So they had these people go in. Okay, they told them, okay, walk down the street, turn right and go into the cafe, order a coffee, sit down and drink your coffee. So they had put like a $5 bill on the sidewalk for every person. The only people who saw it were the people who called themselves lucky. Mm. And also when they went into the cafe, there was someone sitting at a table near them who was talking about something that had to do with what they were working on. And the lucky people, the so-called lucky people, the self-proclaimed lucky people, noticed they noticed that oh there's a person next to me like let's say you want to be a writer and you hear over here that the person sitting next to you is a literary agent and you strike up a conversation with that person only the so-called lucky people did that so i mean obviously this we're not talking about luck today but the idea is that people who think they're lucky are going to notice things that are lucky or that that are beneficial to them and people who think they aren't lucky won't won't see those things and you know whatever it is people who think that they're beautiful They'll see someone glance at them and they'll think, oh yeah, that person thinks I'm beautiful. Whereas if, it, you know, if it's the person thinks they're ugly, same thing, person looks at them and that person thinks I'm ugly. You know, whatever it is, we, we pick up on, we notice what confirms our beliefs about ourselves. Hmm, that's interesting. I wanted to go back to that, that phrase that you liked in this thing, the, thing I've, the things I've seen are mine now that you liked because we got a beautiful email from our listener, Pat. A beautiful email in many, many ways, because she talks about a whole bunch of different topics. I could make like six shows out of the email that Pat wrote us, but we put the this clip, the thing that you read, we put it in our newsletter this month so that people could read it and respond to it. And Pat was the first person to write in responding to this quote. And speaking of which, if you're listening right now and you think, newsletter i didn't know they had a newsletter (laughs) now you know tiffany just started this three months ago and if you want to be on the newsletter list just find a way to let us know either on social media or you can send us an email to bittersweetlife at mail.com and we'll put you on what we've been thinking about sometimes we'll probably offer some prizes giveaways fun things like that just let us know anyway going back to what pat said so she said she really responded to that phrase, the things I've seen are mine now also. And she wrote this. The things I've seen are mine now is a wonderful summation of much of what I've been thinking about a lot lately. That travel as we knew it is likely to be unavailable to me again in my lifetime. 
I am 72 and Tom is 75. For several years, I've been thinking we should be settling in to being satisfied with armchair travel at our age. We've been blessed beyond measure to be able to travel a great deal in our ordinary lives. Backpacking around Europe in our young 20s, several low-budget trips to Europe in our 30s, and then living and working in New Zealand several times, and for two years in our early 60s living and working in London. We have had a good run. I've traveled a good bit with train passes in Europe and the UK, last year for three weeks by myself, from one end of England to the other by train. This year, in February, I went from London to Glasgow and back over a weekend for an eco-dye class, looking through that window as we sped through the Lake District or past narrow boats cruising on very tiny canals. I tried to write on my brain the sight of things. I am always thinking, I am not likely to pass this way again. I must remember this. How very marvelous to translate that phrase over to the things I've seen are mine now. Thank you for that blessing. I love that. So many great pictures, too, in what she wrote there. I can't take credit for writing that, though. The Things I've Seen Are Mine Now is by Olga Tokarczyk in her book Flights. But she may never have come across those words. That's true. If you hadn't decided to talk about them and to write about them. That's true. That's true. So thank you for that, Pat. When I was listening to the interview with Susan Engel, I, a quote from a famous book popped into my mind that is definitely not as, um, as poetic as uh, the one from Flights. I'm not even going to try to say that author's name. But it made me think of it when she was talking about how she's now keeping a journal for the first time in her life as an academic, keeping a journal because she wants to remember this. And it's from Alice in the Looking Glass, actually. And it goes like this. The horror of that moment, the king went on, I shall never, never forget. You will, though, the queen said, if you don't make a memorandum of it. Hmm, I love that. It's so true that we, we live these moments and we say, I'll never forget this. I will never forget this. And then you forget it. You really, really forget it. And Aurelio says things, this is not a big deal <laughs> compared to, you know, life-changing travel. But Aurelio comes out with these really hilarious things sometimes. And I think to myself, I got to write this down because I want to remember this. Mm-hmm. And I usually will be like a couple of hours later in the day and I'm like, okay, what was it? And I can't remember anymore. And it will have just happened. And I, at the moment, I think I'll never forget this, but I do forget it. But it's funny. The things that I do remember that he said are the things that I've told my friends about or I've told my mother-in-law or I've told my mom. I said, oh, Aurelia said the cutest thing. Those things I do remember, which harkens back to her talking about how if you are used to telling the same story, you will remember it because you've told it so many times. But she also says that you will remember the story. You will not necessarily remember the memory. Right. All you have to do is tell it wrong one time, and then you're <laughs> going to remember that. Tell it wrong and get a bigger <laughs> laugh than you got the first time you told it, and it's going to change forever. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I love that. Another little quick thing about memory that I've always wondered about is I have these memories of childhood, but sometimes I don't know if I remember them or if my mother told me about it, or if I saw a video or a photograph. Mm. So I wonder, how would I even know? And I think about Aurelio too, and I think sometimes I tell him about things that we did in the first time we went to America when he wasn't even two. And I tell him, we did this and we did that and we did this. And sometimes he says, oh, I remember, I remember. And I think, do you really remember? <laughs> <laughs> or not, I remember hearing you tell him about it. Exactly. 
I don't know. It's probably a bit of both. Yeah, because you couldn't even tell whether or not, even if you can picture it, doesn't necessarily mean that it actually happened. No, absolutely not. Because you picture, I remember, this is a random thing, but I remember reading one of the Harry Potter books and there's a scene in it. Uh, It's one of the later books, six, I think. And there's a scene in it. It's the beginning. It's the opening of the book. And I watched the movie at some, probably around the same time, maybe a year or two later. And then years later, I watched the movie again. And I said, what about that scene? You know, in, and, I, and I thought to myself, I, I know that this scene is in it because I remember it. I've, I saw it. I pictured it. But I only read it. But I pictured it so visually that I really thought that it was in the movie. I was convinced. That's amazing. <laughs> well, it's ama- I guess it's a testament to J.K. Rowling to be able to write a scene that's so easy to picture. That reminds me of what they kind of say about, you know, the golden age of radio drama and literature in itself is that they have found, and I don't know who they are, but I did read this. So if we're going by Tiffany's, <laughs> t- <laughs> Tiffany's say, if, it, if we read it, it has to be true, which is not <laughs> the case, everyone. We know that, right? But let's say, uh, <laughs> I did read it somewhere, but they have found that if a person goes back and listens to a radio drama again or reads the same book again, that they will picture it in the same way. Hmm. As if they've already created the place where this character lives yeah. And it's filled out as a real place in your head. So if you go back to where that character lives, you see it in the same place again. That's so fascinating. I don't know if I ever told you this before, but one time I decided there was a book I read a lot as a child. It was a little chapter book. I had no idea what it was called. I remembered that it was illustrated. And I just, for whatever reason, I made it a mission that I was going to figure out what this book was and read it as an adult. Ooh. And there was no way of like researching it. I didn't remember what it was about. I didn't remember what its title was. How would you possibly go about this? <laughs> and so what I did was I started going to thrift stores. And every time I had time to kill in a thrift store, I would go to the children's department and I would just scan the shelves, trying to tap into my childhood memory of what would I have been attracted to as a kid. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. What colors, what titles, uh, what topics... And I probably did this for 10 years. Oh, my God. And I'll never forget, although you now know that that's not true, (laughs) that one time I was in the Seattle Goodwill, the big one, everybody, down off Rainier Avenue, and I was looking through the books, and all of a sudden I hit on one. This seems like it could be it. It was called Shadow Castle. It was like pink and blue. And... I opened it up and immediately recognized one of the drawings vividly in it. And I was like, this is it. I actually found the book. Oh my gosh, Katie. Did you get goosebumps? I couldn't believe I'd found it. I'd looked for it for so long. Oh my gosh. I read it. It was terrible. <laughs> Just <laughs> terrible. The worst book. Story doesn't hold together. Boring. Uh, but still, as a kid... It really tapped into something for me. So that was really fun. That's incredible. Sometimes when I think back on my childhood, it feels like it was so long ago (laughs) that I'm almost surprised that some of the people I knew in it are still alive. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I don't know, Katie. I feel like, I feel like when I was 14, like, I feel like that was yesterday. I feel like our memories, particularly like doing theater together. Yeah. Like if you compare how many years have passed 
since then, as opposed to how many years we'd been alive at that point. Some of the things that we did together when we were 13, Mm -hmm. when we were in our first play together, Snow White, (laughs) I think about that and I think about how many years have passed since then. Two, almost almost three times the amount of time that we'd been alive at that point. That's hard for me to believe because I feel like at 13, we had lives, we had memories, we had... We weren't fully formed adults, but we were fully, you know, we were full little humans. Yeah. But I guess every child feels like that. I'm sure Aurelia feels exactly the same when he's four years old. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> feels like his experience is just as rich as ours, I guess. But anyway, yeah, I still, I still feel like it's not that long ago. Well, maybe next, we'll next show up, we'll have to talk about the nature of time, which we've talked about on the show before, but it's been a while. And it's a fascinating uh, subject as well. Yeah. Because like you, as you say that, I'm, yeah, of course, my childhood is also very close. It's both far and close. Well, I always tell my younger friends, I have a lot of friends who are a great deal younger than me, and I always tell them, like, your 20s feel so long. They just stretch out over this incredibly long period of time. And your 30s, they go by in a blink I don't know if you, it was the same for you, but I just felt like the 20s just lasted forever and the amount that I crammed in. And I'm not saying I didn't do a lot in my 30s because I definitely did, probably more, but I just felt like the time period and probably your teenage years are even longer than your 20s in that sense. I recently saw a tweet from someone who said to the women in their 20s, stop it with the mom jeans. Trust me, you will regret it. to which one of my former interns wrote no we won't to which i thought yeah you will yes you will (laughs) (laughs) you will you will trust me trust me i'm here from the future yeah seriously like show off that flat tummy while you have it yep for sure (laughs) or you know you could be like katie and myself who still have it oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) well if you want to read this book, Flights by Olga Tokarczyk. Tiffany will make sure that there's a link in the show notes so that you can find it without having to write down that long last name and without me having to try to remember how to spell it. Absolutely. (laughs) There's tons of stuff in this book. So if you're interested in that, and remember, if you're interested in that newsletter and all the surprises it holds down the line, Mm. just send us a note sign up yeah one day we will have a website that actually has an email capture feature on it but our website does not i'm working on our new website right now but it's a slow process for me but yes we do not have an email automatic email sign up on our website right now so you'll have to just send us an email at bittersweetlife at mail.com or you can just send it via the contact page at our website the bittersweetlife dot net or you can send it private message on social media that works too yep because we're just gonna keep churning out great things (laughs) just like this show week after week (laughs) week after week nothing slows us down yeah and until next time this is the bittersweet life i'm katie sewell i'm tiffany parks join us again bye thanks to Lori lee elliott for her help managing the bittersweet life on youtube and to sarah johnson for her consultation Our logo is made by Jody Rick at the Lost Laboratory, with painting assistance by our muse, Caravaggio. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. 
That way we're here for you every week, both on Monday and now on Thursday. And if you review us on Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful for you. Send us your topic ideas, questions, and voice memos. We're at bittersweetlife at mail.com or at the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net.